Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. Uh, my name is Nathan Coleman-Lamb, and I'm joined today by my good friend, Derek Silva. Hey, Derek. Hey, Nathan. Well, we got a real Canadian episode yep. for you today, and I think that's appropriate because uh, I'm looking out my window and the temperatures today, I, I'm not actually kidding. I've never experienced this, and I wish I was kidding. We are hitting negative 50 degrees Celsius wind chill today it's in good. Fredericton, New Brunswick, and I feel like I'm in an episode of Snowpiercer <laughs> or something. It's like absolutely out of control. Uh, what have I What have I done? I moved from North Carolina yeah, it's not to uh, anymore. 50 degrees Celsius. It is kind of kind of wild um but anyway it's it's appropriate for our subject matter today because what we're going to get into um are the pervasive issues with harm and abuse in canadian sport these issues with harm and abuse in canadian sport have led mcintosh ross and other scholars to form an organization called scholars against abuse in canadian sport and the project and derek and i are part of that project of this organization is to push the canadian government to form an independent judicial inquiry into the canadian sports system in order to sort of overturn and um, expose the full extent of the harm that athletes in the Canadian sports system have experienced. And we're very lucky today to have on our show the guests, uh, Jennifer Fraser, a uh, author, educator and consultant, and Macintosh Ross himself, an assistant professor at the University at Western University, formerly the University of Western Ontario, which is why I said the university initially, uh, at Western University, to talk to us about what this organization is trying to accomplish and the full magnitude of harm in Canadian sport. Jennifer Fraser is an educator, consultant, and author of The Bullied Brain, Heal Your Scars and Restore Your Health. We're also joined by Macintosh Ross, who is an assistant professor of kinesiology at Western University and organizing member of Scholars Against Abuse in Canadian Sport. And for full transparency, I should note that all of us in this conversation are members of that organization, uh, Scholars Against Abuse in Canadian Sport, which you'll sort of hear repeated throughout the conversation. Uh, Jennifer and Macintosh, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, well, let's get right into it here because I think that there's a lot for us to cover. Um, and I don't want to assume, quite frankly, that our listeners, many of whom are not in Canada, right? And, and I think that it's important to note that the issues we're talking about here today are Canadian issues, but they're also sport issues much broader than Canada. Certainly, we know the United States, Europe and beyond all are suffering in their own ways with the kind of problems we're discussing today. But I, I wouldn't assume that our listeners who are not in Canada um, would have much familiarity with the specific context we're talking about today. So I want to make sure that we establish that for our listeners. So Matt, can you start off by maybe giving us a sense of the scope of the problem um, with some specific examples, perhaps, and what drove you to organize Scholars Against Abuse in Canadian Sports? Sure. And another way of putting that is, oh, so, sorry, Matt, yeah, just another way of putting that is, what is the current so-called safe sport model in Canada? And to what extent is it failing to keep athletes safe? Sure. It's, um, so the scope of the problem is truly gigantic. It's at all levels of sport across all sports. Uh, I think we've been seeing that at the standing committee uh, on the status of women in Ottawa lately. It really got um, highlighted, I thought, uh, with the, the testimony of uh, Lanny Marchand, 
uh, who talked about her time before elite sports. So before she was a runner uh, in the Canadian elite system, she was a figure skater um, as a child. And she talked about all the horrific abuse um, and the highly sexualized nature of figure skating in Canada and what she had to go through. Um, and it just, this, this is just constant accounts of this happening over and over again. Um, at this at this committee and and it's like the government is constantly trying to find a way to evade doing something truly sustainable and meaningful to try to stop it they want they want to find something quick and something they can slap slap on the problem like a band-aid mm-hmm. um and that's really what i think got most of us moving at scholars against abuse in canadian sport was the voices of survivors and wanting to amplify their voices and, and make sure that this call for an independent judicial inquiry wasn't lost and that their voices saying that the current safe sports system, uh, which relies a lot on reporting um, policies, people picking up those policies and reading them, um, on underfunded NSOs, on all of those kinds of things, it's not working. Uh, it's not even close to working. And anytime anybody wants to find some kind of recourse uh, to what happened, they have the very real possibility that they're going to face retaliation from the coaches or the administrators because it's all in-house. It's all done by Sport Canada. And if that's the case, you're basically turning to the organization that was supposed to protect you, was supposed to have oversight of all this, to have the mechanisms in place to make sure that you can compete in a safe um, and meaningful way and enjoy sports, you're now turning to them and saying, can you help me? Um, I know you didn't do anything before, but could you do something now? And more often than not, the answer is going to be uh, no, um, which has been infuriating to hear. Um, and uh, I think that's that that's the fuel behind our group. It's the fuel behind the other groups calling for um, the same thing, an independent judicial inquiry. Um, because if we don't dig into it, if we don't really look at it, and you know, a lot of people don't want to see how ugly it is. They don't want to know. Um, mm-hmm. They don't want to hear any more stories. Um, because so many of us, I think, are so invested in sport. It's the biggest form of entertainment, whether it's participatory or spectator, uh, in Canada easily, and probably the whole world. Um, we have this uh, almost a rational connection to it that we don't, we don't want it to be bad, but the notion that it's inherently good is also not, it's flawed. It's, it's never been true. Um, if we go back to 1989 and the Dubbin inquiry, Dubbin told us that we have an unhealthy relationship with high level sport in this country. And that if we're going to continue down this road where winning is everything, then anything can be rationalized away to get to that target. And that's what we're seeing happen now, like decades after that. Um, So when people come and say, oh, well, we know what the problem is. We know um, why abuse occurs. We know all these things. Um, So we don't need an independent inquiry. Well, why has nothing happened in three decades? Why why has everyone been sitting around, um, you know, (laughs) <laughs> like where where's the action being if we have all this information we know what to do wouldn't it have happened already wouldn't have sport canada stepped in and 
and made sure that the athletes were safe and protected? Wouldn't the provinces have had the funding they needed to have safe sport mechanisms? Uh, wouldn't the NSOs feel like they can come out and say, oh, yeah, we can have safe sports, not a big deal. Instead, they're coming out and saying, we don't have enough money. We don't have enough power. We don't have enough labor. We don't have enough anything to do this. They're telling us to do this, but we can't. Um, so that's just a completely failed system. It's completely fragmented and broken. And, and that's why scholars against abuse in Canadian sport is so important because we're, we're pushing back with the survivors. We're listening to the survivors. We're, we're seeing what they want. And then we're amplifying that. We don't move without them. We move shoulder to shoulder. Um, and, and that's the way it's going to be until we get this thing sorted. And what do you think is like the general reason for the reluctance and unwillingness to, to conduct a full independent judicial inquiry? Like from the, from the government's perspective, what, what are the sort of overarching reasons that they're so reluctant to do this? I think it looks bad. It's going to it's going to unveil a lot of things about the government itself, uh, about the sports structure that we have in place that they funded and told us was, you know, sufficient and and was going to work. Um, so, I think there's a lot of politics involved in this, unfortunately, mm-hmm. and it would be a terrible shame if political expediency was the reason that all these survivors don't get their voices heard and not just heard but acted upon. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, to sort of dig further into what this looks like in practice, and that was really helpful, Mac, in terms of just sort of giving us the, the general terrain. But Jennifer, you've actually had very specific experience sort of working on these issues because you were involved, if I understand correctly, uh, in a task force that was put together to, to examine problems with abuse and harm at Gymnastics Canada specifically. Uh, I'd love to hear from you about your experiences uh, examining Gymnastics Canada, uh, what the process was, and what perhaps they reveal about how abuse is allowed to flourish in this system. Well, I was brought onto the task force by Kim Shore, and this is the work I do. I'm a consultant, so I was asked to work with a team, and we're talking Amos Guerrero, who wrote the book Armies of Enablers. He's a law professor in Utah, and he chaired our group. And there were lawyers and Sandy Kirby was part of it. And she's, you know, one of the top academics in Canada who's been studying abuse in sport for decades. And um, we had survivors that had actually been abused in gymnastics, very specifically like Amelia Klein. She had presented to the Jim Can board. And Kim is also a victim. Her daughter was also victimized in gymnastics. And that's for her the moment where she started to say, look, this has to stop. It's absolutely damaging. What are we doing? And that's that's an amazing moment for an abuse victim because what happens is, of course, you normalize it. You think that what was done to you wasn't abusive. You think your coaches would never want to harm you or hold you back or damage you in some way. And, and it's very hard to wrap your mind around the fact that that actually did happen to you. So this is a, you know, it was a watershed moment for Kim. She really rallied the board. She has all the documentation on the many complaints coming in. And she was deeply, deeply concerned. And she was worried about coaches that had allegations against them and were still having access to athletes, very vulnerable athletes, um, many of them children. So she pulled us together, this team, and we started working and we were all um, passionate about helping Jim Can. We had a meeting with Jeff Thompson and um, 
it was it was kind of an exciting time. I mean, we really had a lot of debates. We looked at lots of different models across the world because gymnastics has been under scrutiny and there's at least nine other investigations have been done. So we took a look at those investigations, what was working, what didn't. And we kept hearing actually a, a pretty worrisome refrain from other countries, which was that, yes, we did this fulsome investigation and now it's sitting on the shelf and nothing's changed. So we set in our, our terms of reference, we really were doing it for change. It wasn't just to be yet another report, yet another sort of rattling off, these are abuses, yes, check mark, we found them. No, we wanted change, we wanted to help change the culture, we wanted to support coaches in learning that certain entrenched models are actually very destructive and they leave lasting damage to athletes. We really wanted to work for survivor uh, recovery and uh, future athlete safety. And so we handed in the terms of reference after months and months of work. And it was, we waited and waited and didn't hear anything. And then all of a sudden, um, it was issued by Ian Moss, I'm pretty sure. It was either Jeff Thompson or Ian Moss. They issued a statement to the gymnastics community, basically saying that we were an independent group. We had nothing to do with them. Um, they were not going to work with us. Uh, it was sort of like we were positioned as kind of rebellious and rogue. It was almost, a, I mean, it was funny if it wasn't actually so tragic. And they just shafted us basically after all this work. And we were just volunteering. We weren't, they weren't paying us. And then they said, oh no, we need to do an an inside investigation. We're going to do an inquiry ourselves. We're going to uh, figure out what's wrong and why so many athletes are reporting abuse. And that was that. And, that, and in that, I mean, Kim Shore stepped down from the board and we decided at that point that we just had to continue doing the work we were doing simply because we were sickened by the fact that children are being harmed and nothing's been done properly to stop it. Yeah, and and speaking of of Ian Moss, I think it's important to to highlight that that Ian was um, the the CEO, Gymnastics Canada CEO, was sort of grilled um, at the parliamentary committee um, that we were speaking of earlier uh, over his handling of of uh, misconduct allegations, and um, several former Olympic um, champions ha have come out in um, stark. Uh, uh, or with strong words uh, against uh, Ian Moss and Jeffrey Thompson um, and calling them to step down um, from their, their post in Gymnastics Canada. So I think it's important that our listeners understand some of that, uh, some of that context as well um, uh, with what you're saying, Jennifer. And this kind of highlights or it brings, brings us to a question that we had just in general about independent reviews and the, the, the supposed uh, independent reviews that I, I really want to get into because it, it sets the stage for the rest of our conversation. Because in much of the discourse around here um, in an abuse uh, in sport, we're hearing about the importance of independent reviews. One of the sort of supposed solutions that seems to have been um, enacted is the sort of uh, contracting of putative independent reviews to the firm McLaren um, Global Sports Solutions. My question for both of you, I'd like to get both of you, start, we'll start with Mac um, here, is are such independent reviews a useful tool? Um, or do you have concerns about like the process of these reviews generally? Um, I, they, they definitely uncover a lot of 
information, how that information is collected, uh, what methods are used. Uh, often it, it leaves a lot to be desired. Um, these are not, you know, the rigorous judicial reviews that you would hope. Um, we saw that with with the McLaren review of Gymnastics Canada, and you really got a sense of, um, I guess, a lack of independence. Uh, this is tough for me to talk about because his office is literally across the street from mine. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it right in there, they went after survivors because survivors had gone after Gymnastics Canada. So they they were trying to discredit uh, Gymnast for Change. They were trying to discredit mm -hmm. Kim Shore. Mm -hmm. What kind of independent review does that? I mean, and if you're really concerned with shifting. Matt, can I just cut in for a second? Because I would actually, I, this is a really important point you're making, and I appreciate it. In what way were they trying to discredit them? Like, what was the, what, what did this look like in concrete terms? Because that's extremely disturbing to hear. Sure. Uh, so basically what the document said was, We've interviewed some people, uh, I'm paraphrasing now, it didn't say which people, where they're from, what their affiliation was, uh, but they, they have doubts about Kim Shore and her approach to activism and that kind of thing. Um, and then they also brought up, um, you know, if survivors are actually interested in participating in this culture shift, you know, why didn't they participate in our review? Well, why would survivors participate in a review that's being paid for by the very organization that has already failed them? Yeah, that's a heck of a yeah. question. I mean, and it's a rhetorical question uh, because, you know, no one, no one needs to answer that. Um, we all understand, right? I mean, this is what conflict of interest means. Conflict of interest is something we have to take seriously in any context that it emerges. Um, and especially after what Jennifer explained to us about the process that occurred at Gymnastics Canada. That's why I thought it was so important to hear from you, Jennifer, about that, because it really, it stands in such stark contrast to what it appears was happening um, from McLaren. Do you have more to add on that, Jennifer? Well, it's really interesting to me because I've been put through a very similar process where uh, I reported directly to administration that athletes were being emotionally and physically harmed because I had heard directly from them. And administration then said to me, okay, well, we need you to take testimonies from these athletes because they usually go to a trusted person. I sat down with the athletes for two hours, eight of them, and just asked them, could you just tell me what happened? Wrote down everything, emailed it to them and said, is this accurate? It's for you. You control this narrative. If you want it to go forward to administration, they are hoping to get this information. They all said, yes, I want it to go forward. I want to protect other athletes so they never have to go through what we went through. And it was eight athlete reports. I mean, and what they were describing was, was appalling behavior, um, incredibly harmful. And so then the administration hired a lawyer. He wrote a report and they suppressed it. No one was allowed to read it. Then they hired another lawyer and his report got widely published and it was 10 pages. And I mean, I've never read anything like it in my life. It's exactly what Mac is describing, but about 10,000 times worse. It was, it was three pages of how incredibly um, 
wonderful this basketball program is. It's just such a special program. And then the seven pages after that had no quotes from the athletes who were abused, except for one, which was uh, a teenage athlete saying, you know, sometimes I wonder if it was maybe my fault <laughs> for why I was abused. That was the only quote that got included. They, they quoted other anonymous athletes who said things like, the, the student athletes who are speaking up are telling nasty lies. Their parents are trying to hijack the athletic department. Um, I mean, just to give you a sense of the tenor. So that report, and the administration had promised confidentiality. They sent that report out to hundreds of people. Basically, from their lofty position of power and trust, but like destroying the reputation of the athletes that had come forward. And by this point, some of the athletes had been directly exposed to the abusive coach. So then they started getting bullied by their peers and other faculty. It was incredible. But I mean, the point of all this is we're, we're talking about crisis in sport right now. We're looking at McLaren. This is textbook what they're doing. They are trying to discredit the people that are saying, I don't want to be abused. I love my sport, but I can't be abused anymore. What do I do? This is absolutely chilling what you're describing. I mean, quite literally getting chills down my spine, thinking about what people are going through here, because, you know, one contextual piece to always remember in any kind of context around abuse, sport or otherwise, is that when you hear testimony from survivors, right, that is the tip of the iceberg yeah. because the yeah. the amount of coercion and constraint that is faced by anyone who reports is immense and it, it, it essentially compounds the original trauma because people are forced to relive it in public, they're litigated, everything that they go through, right, makes it so much worse. So I think you said it perfectly, Jennifer, that the reason why people do this is because they have such a strong personal sense of the ethical imperative to protect others mm-hmm. and to protect them from what they went through. It's not about getting justice or some kind of revenge for what they experience. It's about protecting other people. And it takes incredible courage to do that, given the systems that we're describing here arrayed against them. Right. And if you're talking about something like eight cases of corroborating reports, I mean, it's like that is an absolute mountain of evidence that's screaming about abusive conditions. And then to further suppress that, it's it's I mean, it's it's really wild. Like it, it, it points to why this project is so important, because we are allowing a system to flourish that is just a harm machine. It's an absolute harm machine. And we act like things like Olympic medals justify it. Right. Or, you know, these government committees act like it's too expensive or it's too inconvenient uh, or we're going to get some bad PR as if that is in any way commensurate with the kind of harm we're talking about, as if that should ever be a justification for standing by in the face of this kind of harm and trauma. Um, So that's me just go ahead. Yeah. And and they dumped tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars into this elite sports system. Yeah. and they expect that the harms that it's caused are going to go away with just, you know, a fraction of that. And, you know, these harms have unfolded over, you know, 20, 30 years. It's going to take time to fix it. It's going to take a lot of money to fix it. Um, it may never be totally fixed. Uh, I mean, it is a part of society and society is obviously um, not perfect, but surely we could have some preventative measures put into place uh, and a thorough investigation of how we got here and why we're stuck here. 
um, to the same degree that we have funded this system in the past. Yeah, that's a great point. And I actually, I want to follow up with something that you referenced earlier, and I think is a, is a good kind of touchstone for exactly the point you're making, which is the Dubbin Commission. And I think probably most of our listeners are unfamiliar with that. So it'd be great to hear what was this Dubbin Commission? What was the context for it? And why does it kind of give you in a way a kind of roadmap for what we might might see in a future judicial commission. Sure. So the the Dubbin inquiry was in 1989. It really just came out of um, Ben Johnson testing positive for steroids after he won a gold medal at the 1988 Seoul Olympics, um, and it, it kicked off a moral panic that that positive test in Canada about you know our ethics and and what's going on in sport. How could somebody do this? Um, and ultimately, Dubbin said, you know, this was absolutely foreseeable um, that athletes are going to use steroids in Canada because all we care about is winning. All we care about is Olympic medals. Um, mm-hmm. And if that's all we care about, um, we can rationalize away anything uh, to get those medals if that's the only priority. And at the time, it absolutely was the only priority. Um, and I'm not sure it's gotten better. Maybe they tried for a little while, but then with own the podium, I mean, it's right in the title. We just fell right back into it. And now, you know, athletes with the highest, uh, likelihood of winning gold medals get more funding than everybody else, which puts incredible strain and pressure on all the other athletes. Um, it definitely leads to them fearing that if they speak out, that they'll be kicked out to the outside of this system. Um, I, I, I just feel like if we could do an independent inquiry into steroids and cheating in sport, surely we can do it into child abuse and athlete abuse within the sporting system. Um, it's just nonsense that they say this is too expensive. It'll take too long. How, how is that the case? And the other argument is that, well, we already did the Dubbin inquiry, so we know why sport is messed up in Canada. That was a totally different inquiry about entirely different things. Um, we need something specific for this to dig in and make sure that um, sport isn't a place where, you know, the abuse of individuals can be rationalized away uh, for the pursuit of some gold medals at the next Olympic Games. Okay, yeah. And, and that's a real segue into the next sort of big issue I would, I've been wanting to talk about. So. You know, we've been talking about some of the nuts and bolts of, of all of this so far, but there are some kind of fundamental questions also about questions around harm and abuse and sport. Um, and one of them, and I'll circle back to this, it'll be kind of my second point, but you're, you're gesturing to it, Mac, by talking about this sort of own the podium approach. Sure approach, which I think we really need to engage. And that's something that I'm thinking a lot about. But also, I think this, the, the, the first point is that also, that Jennifer, you have spoken, I know, about the fact that sport can be seen as a place that's sort of an arena in which predatory abusers are able to find the conditions they seek to engage in abusive behavior. And in that sense, it's no different from other institutional settings. So I'm curious, you know, before, again, before we come back to the sort of sport culture piece, which I, I do want to address, how is it that we, we need to sort of think about sport, education, other settings as places where abusers are able to thrive? That is, people who are specifically predatory, looking for opportunities to prey upon young people. Why is sport a safe place for them? Yeah, that's an excellent question. 
our laws are not working. So our legal system, the fact that you can hire a law firm and they can come in and instead of actually factually unpacking what's happening, they can somehow um, discredit those who report abuse. I mean, it just shows our laws don't work. So, I mean, one of the things that I've been trying to say throughout this kind of crisis is I truly believe we need to change our legal system and only the government can do that. And I think they need the inquiry done and an independent one because it's really when you have abuse um, of athletes, you have abuse of children and young people and youth, it's really a system problem. It's not just the abuser that is the issue, as we've seen with Hockey Canada, we're seeing it with Gymnastics Canada, we've seen it with Soccer Canada. It's the enablers of the abuse that we really need to work on. And when I say they need to be criminally accountable, I'm not trying to be like really intense and, and make it super difficult for these people. What I'm saying is if you made administrators criminally accountable for covering up and enabling abusive individuals to do the abuse that they do, then they would become the most educated. They would become the best leaders in stopping abuse in its tracks. Why? Because they are actually on the line. Their head's on the chopping block. And so one of the most important precedent-setting cases for this was at Penn State, where Sandusky was abusing kids and it was being covered up. It was known. And the administrator, so the president of Penn State, the vice president of Penn State, and the athletic director all went to jail. That has never been seen before. And that should set a precedent for all of us saying, you know what, whether it's the Catholic Church, whether it's Soccer Canada or a school system, we know for a fact we have enormous amounts of documentation that they pass on abusive individuals to other unsuspecting cohorts of children. That's what they do. And we saw it with Soccer Canada even. We know that. And those leaders are still in positions of power. It's incredible. And, and they're they're in charge of children. They're in charge of young people and youth who are very vulnerable, um, just as Mac was outlining, because their hopes and dreams, their sport is on the line and they're passionate about their sport. That's a really great way to be able to manipulate someone. So the reason I try to talk about other contacts like education or um, the Catholic Church or whatever is to show that this isn't really about sports. It's about a larger issue in our society with condoned child abuse, lax laws, laws that allow for things like the McLaren report or the legal doc, supposed legal document that was used in my case to discredit um, athletes reporting abuse. I mean, the laws aren't working. That's why in my research and work, I turn to science. And you know, it's funny, Mac and I have talked about this and the, the Scholars Against Abuse in Canadian Sport. We've been talking about this University of Toronto panel that was put together with, with wonderful academics, but also with McLaren Sport uh, being represented, which is, they're not academics, um, they're lawyers, and they're in a very conflict of interest, troubling position. They also wrote the report on Soccer Canada and were widely criticized for being not trauma-informed, not sticking to confidentiality that they promised, et cetera. And, um, you know, there wasn't any scientist there. There wasn't any psychologist um, talking about the damage done to a person when they are abused 
practice after practice, game after game, year after year. And, you know, if the government's worried about money, they could save an incredibly large amount of money by stopping abuse of children. We know it's correlated in the research since the 1980s with everything in society that costs the government enormous amounts of money, like self-medication, substance abuse, disordered eating, uh, mental health issues, chronic health, uh, chronic illness in midlife, um, violence, and the criminal justice system. Those are expensive things. If you want to stop how much we have to invest in them, then you need to stop child abuse. Yes, yeah, certainly. I, I'm curious to get your... So on, on, on the podcast in the past, we have been um, very committed to the idea that harm and abuse is... An, an actual a foundational imperative of elite sport that so so the the sort of con the 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 um the the counterpoint here is that it's not necessarily about bad apples absolutely bad folks who are harming people should be held accountable but if we kind of take a macro view and uh, form the argument that harm and abuse like this is actually part of the foundations of elite sport um, how would you respond to that question, Jennifer? Um, I have a chapter in my book, uh, The Bullied Brain, on exactly that. And I purposefully, mm. um, I didn't talk about elite sport. I talked about mm. jazz. And the reason mm. I talked about jazz is because they behave in mm. the music world identically to elite uh, sport world. Identical. Mm. They use literally use the same language, the same homophobia, the same put downs, the same screaming in the face, the same unpredictability, the same uh, threat, perpetual threat of violence, et cetera. They, they use coercion, they get into their minds. And, you know, there's probably nothing farther from, say, basketball or uh, gymnastics from jazz. And why I unpacked it in the jazz world and the music world and, and drew on, um, people very involved and how they, they talk about the emotional, um, the predatory emotional world of elite music is to show that, and it's exactly as you described, Derek, really, and it's across society, and that's why I, mm -hmm. I did it in music, there is a deep-seated and entrenched belief. We don't like to say it. We don't like to say it out loud. We like to say we don't tolerate abuse. We don't tolerate bullying in our society, which is an outright lie. We actually enable it every step of the way. And that's why it flourishes. Really what the myth is, is that you need, um, that abuse and bullying are necessary evils for greatness. That's what we actually believe. And that's why we worship that myth. And we, we, every chance we get, we try to support it. And that's why in my book, I debunk that myth with science because in actual fact, if you want high achievement, you want high performance, let's look at our professional teams. They're not being abused. They're not, they don't have sexual predators lurking all around in the dark corners. They're not, they're not at the receiving end of misogyny and racism and all the different things that are done to our, our developing athletes. If, if it's so effective, why aren't we doing it to our professional teams? I mean, who's, nobody's answering that question. And, and the reason being is because those athletes have power. So, you know, as soon as you have a power imbalance, like coach to athlete or athletic director to coach, even you could say, or, you know, teacher to student, the, the greatest power imbalance in the world, and it's never talked about, is adult to child, adult to young person or youth. And really, as soon as you have that power imbalance, you need um, 
unbelievable protections in place for safety because the power imbalance and the loyalty bind and all these, these things that you know about kick into play and it sets up damage and it damages brains. I mean, we now know on brain scans that all forms of abuse, you don't have to touch the body, psychological abuse, emotional neglect, all these kinds of verbal abuse, they do damage to the brain. It can be seen on a brain scan. And this is why it takes people such a long time to recover, sometimes a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think, I think I see, I see exactly what you're saying. And it, the problem is not that abuse produces performance, because as you're saying, people flourish when they are nurtured, not being abused. And so of course their performances are going to be better in environments where they are being nurtured and allowed to flourish. The problem is that we have, as you say, a myth, a pervasive myth that is the dominant hegemonic logic of how high performance sport is conducted that, and it would never be coded as abuse in those contexts, of course, but that a behavior that we might call abuse, which is to say subjecting people to dehumanizing language, dehumanizing, um, situations for their bodies, which they're forced to go through overtraining and harm and so forth. There is this myth that that is how you produce performance, which means that sporting culture in its attempt to produce performance, because the guiding imperative of high performance sport is performance and nothing else, right? Because of that, we see pervasively, not just in the case of like predatory individuals, but really almost across the board, other than in context, as you, I think, really rightly put it, other than in context where we see athletes having actual power and has become clear because it's because of the way in which it's monetized, right? Like the NBA is the clearest example. We have this idea of the, the sort of the player empowerment movement in the NBA. No rational person who wants to have success in the NBA would say that their team is better without LeBron James than with LeBron James. So that means that if LeBron James says the only way he's staying on this team is if X, Y, and Z occur, right? Those things are going to occur because the team can understand. It's just no person can look at the situation and think this team is better off without LeBron James. But in every other context of sport, that power dynamic, as you pointed out, it's reversed. And the coach is largely the one that controls that power. The person who says who gets to play, who gets to participate, who is held as the, the person responsible for success or failure. And the coach is thus empowered to use these really problematic methodologies that are essentially abusive in order to engineer performance. Except, of course, as you pointed out, that's not necessarily how performance is best engineered, but is the dominant logic and methodology of high performance sport. And we have to interrogate that, I think, really fundamentally. Yeah, I totally well, I think, agree. Yeah, like to to add to that, I think like the the one of the things I think that we that folks who focus too much on the people doing the abuse as the the problem, um, I think one of the sort of latent consequences of that is that then therefore the solution is to just deal with those folks to to say criminalize those folks or hold those folks accountable and instead and what we that simultaneously hides exactly what Nathan is talking about that simultaneously hides the discussion of okay is all the entire system of elite sport or elite education or a, like any other context the entire is the entire system based and predicated 
on the existence of those same mechanisms for abuse and harm? And if so, how do we deal with that? Those are the important and costly and big conversations that I think we we don't even we can't even have if we focus so much on the 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 individuals and and holding certain people accountable for harm in sport. Um, and, and I think we're seeing a, a lot of those like the the passing of the blame happen in this entire environment in the, in this entire case where the sport minister currently is like trying to pass blame um uh, onto or or suggesting that it's like bad apples that are that are doing this it's not a problem of sport and then simultaneously also suggesting that it's not like the federal um it's not the federal government's uh problem to to quote unquote solve and trying to pass like the the solution blame or the the um, accountability for solutions onto provinces for instance suggesting that oh it's about the provinces have to deal with sports and deal with the harm uh, and not the federal government so w- one of the 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 questions i had and i think mac uh, i'll go to you first is is um first of all what do you think of sport minister Ange kind of arguing that it's the province's um uh, uh job to deal with this um and and two um what do you hope a judicial commission um will accomplish and 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 how do how do you see that sort of um as what are the solutions uh to the issues that sort of confront us um well at first the the uh the minister pointing to the provinces and trying to kind of shift some of the blame i think was was very strategic i i think she expects us not to realize necessarily um that in order for the national sports system to function, there has to be provincial sports systems that they are all working together all the time. Anyhow, they have an agreement where, where they, they meet and talk about the future of sport and and all those things. Um, But it also speaks to, you know, the the dysfunction of our system in general. Um, By the time athletes get to the national system, it's, it's almost too late most of the time. I wouldn't say almost too late. It's almost always too late. Um, so when, when when they're trying to spread the blame around and 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 that kind of thing, um, it's it's disheartening. But it's also it's there is a truth to it. I mean, but how are they supposed to? How are the provinces supposed to pay for that by themselves? Um, and it's not separate from the national system, no matter what they say. There is no national system without the provincial sports federations or the provincial sports organizations. Um, so it's all together. And I think that whole package together and what she inadvertently probably did, in my opinion, by saying that was it showed that it's way too big for the federal government to just deal with, for, for Heritage Canada to deal with, for Sport Canada to deal with. And that leads into your second question about the the national inquiry or the independent judicial inquiry. I think it, it, it has to happen, not just, not just to hold people accountable, but to begin to rebuild trust in the sports system. Mm -hmm. Um, There is no reason for anybody to trust a system that won't investigate or order an investigation of itself. Um, 
or the government to, to lead an investigation and hand it over to a justice who can and look at this from a more independent perspective, uh, similar to the Dubbin Inquiry, um, that just raises questions when they want to keep it within the, the Office of the Sports Integrity Commissioner, mm-hmm. when they want to keep it within, within the national sports organizations. It, it raises real questions about, well, why? Why would we do that? Um, and how will that rebuild any trust? These are the organizations that have failed um, the athletes already. Why are we turning to them for the solutions? And why are we turning to the sports system for the solutions? And why wouldn't we want to know uh, what's wrong? Um, and and the, the whole argument about looking forward and moving forward is so mm. incredibly disrespectful to survivors yeah because it just it just suggests like oh well yes this happened to you but you know we're just going to protect people moving forward um we're sorry that happened but we're not going to look into it we're not going to get down to to the the cultural flaws within the sports system that produced this um and in the process they're not going to actually change anything enough to prevent it in the future in any meaningful way. It won't be sustainable change. It'll be change that ticks a few boxes for a few politicians as they go into the next round of elections and they'll move on from there. Um, What will change look like? I think there has to be a huge shift from our emphasis on competition at the international level, our emphasis on uh, winning at all costs. And I know this sounds like a broken record and everybody's saying this in every media interview, but it's true. And once we realize that we're part of an international system that is incredibly destructive um, and that we don't necessarily have to play by their rules and we can go to the Olympics and we can do all those things while supporting athletes, while having a safe environment for them to compete here and compete and train and learn about sports Um, and not just elite athletes, everybody, everybody should be able to play sports and and enjoy it. Um, If we could do that and start to shift away from kind of the IOC's model of nation versus nation, um, you're only as good as your medal count kind of, uh, kind of a setup, then maybe, maybe we can, start to see some real change and there's no way for us to do that without an independent judicial inquiry Mm -hmm. that digs in and shows yes this is the problem and here's you know all the examples of how it led to this here's how the system has worked against athletes and harmed athletes um here's how people are not held accountable and i agree this is not not about some kind of wild hunt to find um, people to blame. That's not what this is about. And I felt like a little bit on last night at that U of T safe sport panel that came up multiple times, you know, like, well, let's not try to blame anybody else. Let's not, yeah. you know, well, we're not asking you to do that. We're asking you to look at the culture of Canadian sport, where it fits in the world and how it's hurting people. Um, that That's not running around trying to point the finger at people. That's looking at the underlying issues that are fueling this. That's right, Mac. If, if you, if we are not willing to catalog the harms that exist, if we're not willing to identify them and analyze them, there is literally, I mean, quite literally, no possible way of redressing them. And I think that's exactly what you're saying. The point of an inquiry is to document 
what Canadian sport looks like today. And is that going to show that some people have culpability? Yes, it is, because they do have culpability, right? But what really matters is to show in fine-grained detail how the harm operates, how it circulates, and how it is saturated in the very fabric of what Canadian sport looks like today. And that has to be the starting point for any forward-looking approach, right? So that's one thing I I really want to emphasize. But there are a couple other things because you hit on a lot of topics that that are, you know, kind of close (laughs) to my heart here. No, no, they're close to my heart and I want to touch on each of them. And one of them is, you know, we talk about, we call sport, we have various ways, but we say these games, right? Who's playing this game? Yeah, they're games. That's exactly the Mm -hmm. point. But own the podium, the Olympic model, as you say, professional sport. Sport has been transformed. Capitalist sport has become something that is completely separate from the game that it is meant to be. And we have to return to thinking about sport as play. It is play. It is not work. It is not performance. It's play. And until we start talking about sport as play, I don't really want to hear people talking about how important it is to have kids participating in sport. Because often that's the question. Oh, our participation numbers are up. Our participation numbers are down. You know what? Our participation numbers should be down. I want them to be down if sport looks the way it does today. Because it's not playful. It's not fun. It's not humane. It is, in fact, profoundly dehumanizing. And it's causing exactly the kind of trauma that Jennifer's talking about that is difficult for people to shake over their life course, right? And as long as we have a system that looks like that, we shouldn't have our kids enrolling in this system. And so if we want to start talking again about participation in sport and how valuable and healthy that is, you have to make sure this is a system about play. And I don't care how many medals come out of it. I don't care how many people make their careers off of sport. I want it to be a place where we feel comfortable sending people for enjoyment and well-being. And health. That's yeah. right. And health in a real it's sense. Real. In a real yeah. Sense. I mean, we know that it's the it's the driving force behind the healthiest things we can do and the healthiest things for our children. And we drive our kids into either the skateboard park because there's no adults around or to video games because there's no adults around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. Those are rational choices children exactly. are making. I think it's exactly what you're pointing to, right? Those are actually safer spaces for them in, in some ways. Of course, they're un, if they're unregulated, you know, maybe they're not. But, but I, I completely take your point. Um, yeah, we, I mean, kids should be playing sport because, and the problem just, we have this distorted idea that health occurs through sport, which is not what you're saying. And I'm well aware of that. And what it actually looks like in practice is overtraining, right? Because the people's bodies in the context of sport that are supposedly getting healthy because they're quote unquote exercising are actually being subjected to overexercise in ways that destroy their relationship to their bodies. Mm-hmm. And that's where the eating disorders come in. And we see that so pervasively being exposed uh, in Canadian sport today, right? Across, I, I, I was reading a story when I was back in, in the country in December in the Global Mail, they were looking at um, synchronized swimming, right? And, and the experiences of, of, of athletes on the synchronized swimming team and how it was essentially uh, systematic eating disorders being socialized by their coaching staff as part of the practice, right? So all of these contexts, it's, it's, it's so insidious. And I'm sorry, I know I'm ranting as I always do, but it's so insidious because it masquerades as health. This is exactly the problem. We have this idea that sport is health. We immediately allow for that conflation to occur. But what happens in practice is some of the most profoundly unhealthy practices that exist in our society. Yeah, such a good point. And it's such a great way to articulate it. That's so true. I, um, I want to I give a shout out 
to healthy coaches and to the incredible coaches that we have on the ground. And that's the majority. They really are the most dedicated, amazing people, and they can transform kids' lives. And we know that they're so influential. And the vast majority are just dedicated to raising kids up and bringing athletes to their full potential. And I know that it's heartbreaking for them to constantly be sort of tarred with the same brush as individuals who use their position whether it's in coaching or whether it's in administrating sport to, to personally benefit or to personally serve their own psychosis. They are a minority, but you know, as Mac is laying out, we have to identify why we enable the psychosis. And, and it's not just in sport, it's beyond. And we enable it in the education system. And you know, I think one of the key things here is the federal government can you know, say, we can't do anything about education. It's also provincially governed. It's the minister of education in each province that has to take responsibility for rampant child abuse. And I mean, the data that's come in from Canadian Centre for Child Protection just recently shows that sexual exploitation of children in schools is on the rise. So we have a, a social problem of immense magnitude. And the judicial inquiry is such a foundational thing, just like the Dubbin inquiry was in, in the 80s, because once we open it up, once we see the failings, then we can create what's needed, which is an independent body that's independent. It's not conflict of interest. We can't have any more of these insider investigations. There has to be a place where teachers and coaches and parents and administrators and, and victims and survivors can report the abuse and know that there'll be no retaliation, there'll be no loss of opportunity. It will go through a proper designated system that's federally off away from politicians. And that house is the place where abuse is addressed. That's not hard to do. It wouldn't be massively expensive. It would actually save us all a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think that just generally speaking, I think the reluctance to, um, to launch any inquiry is is very on brand for this particular liberal government, um, where they would rather try to attempt to put minor small band-aids of funding um, into existing sports structures than even entertain a so-called independent um, uh, investigation into uh, practices that may that they may be complicit in, um, and then have to deal with. Um, the costs of actually redressing those. So I, I definitely take your point um, um, there. I, I We've talked about it a little bit thus far, uh, and we've mentioned it. I think, Mac, you mentioned um, the, the event yesterday at, um, at University of Toronto um, where the kinesiology department held a panel on safe sport. And and Mac, you also asked a member for a member of of the group Scholars Against Abuse in Canadian Sport to participate mm -hmm. um, in the panel, and it was uh, you were you were rebuffed. Um, so I'd I'd like to ask you one about your experiences with um, attempting to uh, have someone from the, from Scholars Against Abuse in Canadian Sport to participate, but also I. I I'm getting the sense you actually participated or you, you went as an observer. And I'd like to ask your, some of your experiences with what you saw, what you heard. Yeah, it's, it was a, an interesting experience for sure. Um, so I reached out uh, to Bruce Kidd, who I know a little bit from being a sport historian. 
Um, and he's been in the sport history circles for most of his career. Um, cause he's the moderator. And I said, you know, could you add one of us, um, to, to the panel so that we would have a, a little bit of variety on there for, you know, people who want just safe sport change, you know, the kind of the mechanisms within the sports system and, and sports federations. And then also people who see this as a bigger issue that could require an independent judicial inquiry. Um, I was ultimately told no, that it was too late. Um, although it, it seemed like they had added Adam Vancouver in just the day before. So I don't know how it was too late, but, um, but Adam obviously has a very similar view of things. If not, not, he, he, he presents himself as undecided at least. So he's not in opposition, um, to their very firm stance against a judicial inquiry. Um, so then it kind of progressed from there. I decided I would go and attend and just ask one question, um, which was just simply, you know, there's over a hundred of us in this group, um, hundreds of survivors who uh, are also supportive of the group. Um, and we're asking for an independent judicial inquiry. Why is it being so, uh, why is the group so hesitant, this, this group on the, the U of T Safe Sports panel? Why are they so hesitant uh, to recognize it as a possible solution? Um, and uh, basically what happened was there was kind of a, uh, a general question about a judicial inquiry. They didn't read my question. Um, and then I followed up with, please read the exact question I asked. Um, <laughs> and uh, they didn't do that. But then as it was winding down, uh, it seemed like Adam Vancouverden, uh, the Liberal MP, just went into the Q&A section himself and answered the question. Um, I don't know uh, what happened that 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 led to that unfolding, but, um, he ended up saying that, you know, nothing's off the table, which was in complete, uh, contradiction to everything that had been said up to that point. Um, on that panel, they had basically dismissed any call for a judicial inquiry as a waste of time, as taking up money that could be used for something else. Um, a lot of things that, you know, you, you don't really know. Um, you're just, you know, will it take away from safe sport uh, funding? Probably not. It's probably not even going to come from the same place. Um, so I felt like it was a little deflating to see a whole panel um, all very specifically oriented toward preventing a judicial inquiry uh, with maybe one panelist in the MP who um felt as though uh you know they had to say that it was still open to discussion mm -hmm. um, and why do you think why do you think they were so reluctant to even like entertain the question really like these are li quite literally scholars yeah. who supposedly focus on abuse in canadian sport and someone from and the very... global sport solutions right and these scholars who work on abuse in Canadian sport are very explicitly not members of <laughs> scholars against yeah. abuse in Canadian sport. What's going on there is my question. Um, from my perspective, I think they're, they're just too close to the problem. They've all been involved in the Canadian sports system for a very long time. Um, I think, I think they're doing it with the best of intentions. Um, 
but in the process, you know, you end up, you know, two or three people end up standing, standing up by themselves and saying, no, 104 of you are all wrong. Um, and all your perspectives from human rights and law and sociology uh, and history are, are wrong and uh, that, that we know best and that this is what we're saying. And we're, we're just going to go with that. Um, it, it's hard. Uh, you know, Bruce Kidd was, he was one of my idols coming up through, through sport history. You know, his book, The Struggle for Canadian Sports is a classic. It was very radical at the time, very progressive. Um, so it, it's been challenging for me on a personal level, uh, to deal with this, um, and kind of be on the other side of the table from these folks um, and trying to understand why, like to just why, why are you so opposed to an independent judicial inquiry? It doesn't make any sense. Um, yeah. Jennifer, Jennifer, do you have a view on this? Well, I share Max feelings actually, because one of my heroes is Gretchen Kerr. And when these athletes were being abused in the situation where I was sort of the person that reported it and ended up being a whistleblower on the crisis. Um, I reached out to Gretchen because I've read her, uh, her scholarship on her work on abuse in sport is exceptional. I mean, she, she has unpacked essentially the abusive um, coaching approach and how much it destroys athletes and why and how it works. And I mean, her, her work is just groundbreaking and important. And so I, I've used it in my other book on this issue, Teaching Bullies. And so I asked Gretchen if she could read the, the athlete testimonies. And I did eight, but there were six others. So she actually took her own personal time. She read through the uh, athlete testimonies about the abuse they were enduring. And um, she wrote a report, and she, which we were then able to give to various people. And her report said that the abuse that they were suffering was egregious and the um, coaches definitely needed to step down, et cetera, which of course, none of that happened. Um, they were kept in position and they never actually were even suspended during investigation. They were allowed to just lord over their victims, everything. But um, so when I saw that Gretchen was taking this strong stance, I felt really badly about it. And I, I feel that it's, I just feel that we need to have courage right now. and people feel afraid. And I feel like some of the scholars feel afraid about their own role in how unsafe practices have been allowed to flourish. You know, Gretchen was uh, the safety contact person, the person that actually even heard complaints directly from athletes in Gymnastics Canada for 20, 30 years. So I, I think there must be anxiety and fear and worry that her role in allowing abuse to occur or that she was unable to stop it or didn't fully understand it, even though she's, you know, brilliant and informed. I mean, all of, I can well imagine people feel afraid. I, if I was deeply involved in sport and under my watch, bad things had happened and I, I maybe had been complicit without even meaning to be, I would be very anxious about a judicial inquiry. And so I, human to human, scholar to scholar even, I mean, I relate to it, but I think we have to find our courage. We need to like join together, all of us, and just unpack this and change it. We, we can change it. Well, that's really a, a terrific note, I think, for, for us to end on. Um, and, and what I will do is just encourage those listening, if you are um, a scholar who is concerned about issues of um, abuse and harm in Canadian sport, 
uh, you can reach out to uh, to Macintosh Ross about uh, joining the uh, Scholars Against Abuse in Canadian Sport organization because uh, I think we're always open to more advocates because as Jennifer's pointing out, this is a question of solidarity in this moment. It's not about solidarity between scholars. It's about solidarity between scholars and the athletes who have been subjected and continue to be subjected to harm, right? This is a moment where we are trying to come together to prevent this from happening again in the same way that we've allowed it to flourish up to this point. Um, and, and there's space for everyone in that movement. So Macintosh Ross and Jennifer Fraser, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you.